welcome to episode 334 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Wednesday, 12th of June, 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. This is the third and final episode recorded from the Move Mobility Conference in London last month. I'm Carlton Reed, and if you listened to the first episode with Councillor Emily Kerr and the second one with a bunch of bike infrastructure folks, you might have noticed a difference in the audio. With the magic of AI, I removed all of the background hubbub from the interview with Emily, but left some in for the second one. Due to popular demand, well, a Twitter poll, I reduced the distracting show chatter by a few decibels, but left enough so you could tell that I was recording in an expo hall, not a studio. And I've done the same for this episode. You'll hear from cycling cartoonist Dave Walker, Joanna Saavedra from a Portuguese bamboo bicycle company, two bike mechanic folks from Fettel, Alex Murray from Flitbike, and Xavier Bryce, the CEO of Sustrans. After the ad break, there are some extracts from a chat I had with tech entrepreneur Henri Mossignac, co-founder of the City Share scooter and e-bike company Dot. The background audio for that sounds different again because I was interviewing Henri in front of an audience from the show's main stage. Anyway, kicking us off, here's Dave Walker. Well, <laughs> fancy bumping into you here. Well, we haven't met yeah. before, Dave. Yeah. So it's good to, it's good, to meet. You, it's good yeah. to meet. Yeah. Um, what the hell is a is a, a is a, a world famous cycling cartoonist doing at this conference? Well, um, I'm here to learn, I guess, really, um, in that I I normally spend my time. Uh, shut away in my cartooning lair, <laughs> away from the world. Um, oh, you're meeting real people now. Whoa. Yes, yes. So okay. um, it's nice to be out of the house. Um, so yes, I'm here to, um, essentially, I suppose I'm focusing on the micromobility side of the, uh, of the show. Um, do we call it a show? Is that, anyway. Uh, yeah, so it's talking heads and then a bunch of, like, booths and stands yes. on the outside yeah so yeah no it's a show so i'm here to go to some of the talks and um maybe hear a few different perspectives um because although i focus largely on cycling i'm interested in sustainable transport generally and uh so i've got one or two ideas bubbling up things i've heard already and uh because so when we started talking before, you made a, a good point, and, and, and it is pretty obvious when you start going around, even the bicycle elements of this show, it's basically E. 
element. Yes. Everything has got an electric yes, it element has. to it. And it, the industry is just clearly, everything has got a battery now. And if it hasn't got a battery, it's not innovative and it's not, yeah. it's not going to be an innovative conference like this. Is that a worry? Are we old in the tooth here? Are we, a- um, we are. Um, but I suppose I can see the... Um, if you're developing something new, then I suppose this is the kind of place you, you come to show off your new direction. And so maybe people who are doing things that are more conventional, um, this isn't where you choose to come. Mm. Um, but yes, it does seem to be the way things are going, doesn't it? That um, bikes tend to be moving towards having a motor <laughs> as the standard. Yeah. So the reason I brought you to this particular part of the startup village, and the guy's not here <laughs> because he's Spanish and he's gone for a six-hour lunch or whatever. Uh, but he's lane patroller. So, so this is basically, you'll get a kick out of this because he's doing infrastructure. So it's, it's a cycling infrastructure thing. So it's, it's of interest to you. And the, re- yeah. the reason I brought you here is because it was so cute. When I was talking to him and he's showing me his, um, his product on his laptop, up popped one of your cartoons. And it's like, this is somebody in Spain yeah opening up he's he, so you're world famous and i actually told him i said dave is actually coming i'm gonna bring him across to see so yeah. how do you feel no, about it's, 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 it's lovely it, it's um it's unexpected that um in a very small niche at least my work is is known by people um involved in the world of cycling and cycling infrastructure um, in other countries, it's yeah, it's 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 a but it doesn't thing. put you know Kit Kats on the table, does it? No, it not doesn't... necessarily. No, not necessarily. Um, but it, it's building a profile, so yeah, y- yes, you're more known, so there's and, more chance um, of making money. Yes, and so um, you know, there's a possibility that more people might buy a book or might join my. Um, currently, my diagram club is my way that I'm um, hoping to. Uh, make a bit of a living from from what I do so uh, yeah so it, it's it's good that the work's out there and that it's being seen and enjoyed uh, well hopefully um, he'll come back and you can get to, to, to chat to him and you yeah. can probably invoice him to, to have yeah. that on his lap. it literally was his screensaver was one of your cartoons yeah. which was which was I knew you were coming yeah. to the show so yeah that was great no, now, I, I, I'm, I'm I freely admit that I will rip off cartoons probably with a cycling element in private eye and and put that on social media and i i probably wouldn't do that with a photograph but i i sort of have no compunction to do that with a cartoon is that something that does that annoy you or is that just something that um, no it's, it's part and parcel of what you do as a cartoonist and other cartoonists go through exactly the same thing yeah i suppose um yes i, I suppose on the one hand i see life's probably a bit too short to get too annoyed about this because it is just going to happen people do enjoy funny images and once they have a funny image they will share it um, and use it themselves but on the other hand as somebody trying to make a living from it you know I'm always um, you know it's encouraging when somebody's willing to pay for something um, and so I suppose if somebody's getting professional use out of something particularly um, and it's helping them tell their story um, get their point across uh, then, you know, I prefer to be 
Because you're, you're cutting through with your illustrations, you're cutting through an awful lot of of language and putting an illustration, yeah. and that's it. Then becomes much more visual, obviously. Yeah. But it cuts through the argument. Yeah. Well, that's oh, that's yeah, encouraging to hear because that's 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 um, what I hope uh, it will do, and you know, using a little bit of humour, which I think is these days is a good way to make a point and something that we. You know, we, we love the world of stand-up, and so humour's a, a, a useful tool. Um, and that combined with having, uh, you know, a little bit of knowledge of the, uh, an experience of the world of mm. cycling and... Uh, well, that shines um, through, you know. You, um, you, you absolutely have, have nailed up a lot of people, which is why people share your stuff. So we've established you are a global superstar, certainly in, in, in Spain. You've got a fan there in Spain. Um, where can we find your stuff and where can we find out about the, the, the club where we can yeah. maybe give so, you um, Kit Kats so, so my, uh, my website is davewalker.com so that's where you'll find um, everything that I do I try and link to from there um, or I'm very active on Twitter Instagram um, where you can find by searching um, but yes I uh, I do um I've changed slightly the way I do things. So um, my cycling stuff originally was in books, um, and the books are still available. Um, one that's slightly more sports focused, and others more about getting just everyday getting from A to B. Um, but as I was saying to you before, the last eight months or so, I've been running something I call Diagram Club, which is where people who enjoy my work can pay a small um, fee and get. Um, reuse the work in kind of non-profit ways mm. um, or um, cycling campaigns like local cycling campaigns can use it so then they can use it without having the guilt of oh yeah no, just, we shouldn't be using this can. but it's so good and I leave it to people you know the the price for this starts very low and obviously mm. if people feel like they're getting more use from it then they can they can pay me more money which is you know obviously welcome so um, so yeah so that was my way of allowing people who want to support what I do to have a way of doing so um, and hopefully over time that will grow and, and there'll be kind of new benefits to those who, who join and uh, yeah okay. and, uh, and they're funding they're funding new work which um, so even yesterday I spent the day working on something that wouldn't really be possible were it not for, for that so you know it's a way of funding new cycling work that maybe wouldn't have an immediate commercial backer. Mm. Okay, brilliant. So, who are you? So, I'm Joanna. I'm Hi, the, the co-founder of uh, Bamboo Bicycles. Where Joanna, what's your second name? Saavedra. Joanna Saavedra. Yeah. Okay. okay. And you're the co-founder. Sorry, I interrupted yes. you there. You're the co-founder of? Uh, Bamboo Bicycles. So, we are a Portuguese startup that is exploring uh, bamboo as a natural fiber and a natural composite. And we are designing and building uh, bamboo bike frames um, in Portugal. Yeah. So the frame is entirely made of bamboo, hemp fiber, and a bio-based epoxy. So there are, there are many brands. I mean, even in the 1880s and 1890s, there were bamboo bike exactly. brands. Exactly. And then they were forgotten. Yes. And then, you know, we've, we've, we've got some today and there's like, there's like an African angle. So what's, what's the angle of, because our best spell is actually, it's B-A-M dot B-U. Yeah. So, so what's the angle 
What what's differentiating you yeah. from the few others, not not a huge amount, but the other bamboo yeah. bike makers? So basically, yeah, the the first bamboo bikes that happened was in the UK a really long time ago, mm. but then the industrial revolution came and then the natural materials just got forgotten, right? We do know that, you know, in in um, Asia, in Africa and even in Latin America you have a lot of bamboo. You have a few bamboo constructions even around in product development, but also bamboo is still seen as a, the poor material, you know, because it, it's, you have it in such abundance. And some of the companies or some of the startups that are doing a few things with bamboo in Europe, they either do workshops or they sell you a kit so you can do it at home. You make it yourself, yes. in effect. Or uh, they just import the frame. So what we want to do is to bring the know-how of working with bamboo on a structural way in Europe, because... There will be an industry of bamboo coming up soon. The bamboo plantations are coming up as well in Portugal, in Spain, in France, in Greece. So where are you sourcing the bamboo from? Uh, now it's in Indonesia. Okay, So at this point it's still in Indonesia because the bamboo needs to be cut in the right timing, needs to be uh, dried, needs to be treated. So you don't really have that structure now in Europe. But we are now currently, well, that's why we also were founders of the Iberian Bamboo Association. And our goal is to, the first level is to map the bamboo plantations that already exist in Portugal and Spain, understand how long are they, do they exist, what are the species, for what are they used for, so that we can explore ways of, okay, can we create an industry around product development or product design or more for construction or for uh, processed for textile or something else. So we're working with the university now in Lisbon to do this mapping and to do this analysis of the species. And we hope to continue that further to understand in which direction can the bamboo industry goes in, in Europe. So potentially you could be growing it in Europe. Yes. So how old that this bicycle, which is now in front of us, beautiful, beautiful bamboo bicycle. How old is the bamboo? What's, what are the age is that bamboo? So this bamboo will be always used usual between uh, three to five years old. Okay, so after that, they'll be uh, good enough to cut, to dry it, and to then be used for, uh, for, for construction or for product development. And so in Europe, you can have that soon? Yes, yeah. So normally you have the, the rhizome needs to be developed first, right? So that will take two to three years first. And then the, the rest of, of the bamboo, yeah, will grow between three to five years. It really depends then on the species as well. And then as, as long as you go, you can then just cut it and it grows again. After three, five years, you have it again. That's why bamboo is such a great grass because yeah it's not a tree it's such a great a great a great plant for it because it's besides that it regenerates the soil it's really good for the gives nutrition to the to, to the soil is that after you plant it once it's done then you can cut it because otherwise it will it will dry while it's there and it's also not good so you can cut it you can use it for so many different things and utilizations and then it grows again it's a really beautiful it's not a monoculture you can plant other things around and and it's a very magical as well forest normally when you plant bamboo so we really think it's it's important to see it as a, as a potential uh, for uh, for restore as well um, uh, the nature and biodiversity as well that we we can have. So carbon composites. Yeah. That's basic plastic. Yeah. You you are riding a plastic bicycle. Yes, you can maybe recycle uh, ish. Um, steel. Okay, that's a bit of a better material. Titanium. These are all kind of like 
non-sustainable product, really. Yes, material. In, in many ways. Whereas, of course, this is organic, as in it, it grows. Based, yeah. And you can literally replace it. Um, and then if it breaks, you just basically, I'm not saying it's going to break, but if it yeah. breaks, you then, that's a product that can be okay. basically so, put in a compost. Okay. Yes. So normally a, a, a frame would difficultly break because of the alignment of the fibers of the, of the bamboo tubes. It could possibly uh, crack, but if it cracks, you can fix it. But in the worst scenario, yeah, that if it breaks, you get either uh, upcycle it and, I don't know, do some crafts or, or, you know, out of it. Or you can probably then burn it as well and transform it into biomass or something else. Yeah. So is there any lacquer on there? Is there anything on there that's not eco that you need? Or can you say literally that's just... So the the resin that we're using, the epoxy, it's a bio-based epoxy. So it's not 100% um, echo, but it has a, a, like around 60% echo on the resin because it's still, you can, for this type of structural that you need, you have to get that, that part of it. As so the well. epoxy is just at the joints? Yes, just the joints. Okay, so the rest is okay? Yes, and the joints are uh, hemp fiber and the epoxy that is bio-based, yeah. Right, okay. And are you direct consumer, do you think? Or will it be any bike shops? Okay, so up to now, and one of the reasons also why we're here, um, is we're looking really to distributors or wholesalers um, in the UK, so that we can have a, a representative here. Our strategy in Portugal, and also what we are looking, is also to focus with in tourism and corporates for two reasons. Right. One, to really promote sustainable tourism, cycle tourism, with a completely different um, bicycle, right? And even inspire those persons that are not really used to cycle, but they will be attracted to the bike because it's a beautiful piece of design. Uh, and at the same time, corporate, so that you can really have uh, corporate fleets for, for staff. And we see those two reasons, the, the best way as well to get to the B2C clients, because people are still not really used to bamboo bicycles. So they will be, you know, not very comfortable, probably not trust the material you think about a cane and you think is going to break so we think that the best way to get to the final user and to gain their trust is through either tourism or corporate so that they could try the the bicycle and really get comfortable and confident around it yeah Jonah, how much does this cost how much the as the spec is here yeah what so have we you have got internal on there? gears we, we have internal gears yeah, yeah. We we try as much as possible to use as well uh, Portuguese suppliers in, in so terms of the bike grips. industry. Yeah, this is Brooks. Then we also have here it's Tabor. We have Miranda on the crank set, and we have uh, Vadi. So we try as well to so get. So nice kit. Yeah. How much is that going to yeah. set me back? What's so that going to cost? It, it starts in two thousand five hundred euros. Yeah. So that's expensive. Yeah. For a made in Europe bicycle. Yes, and because Portugal is actually coming up. As a as a manufacturing nation of bicycles, yes. So you are you are not like some strange, yeah. Yes, your niche, yeah. But Portugal is now becoming known, yes, in so, in the EU for making bikes. Yeah. So Portugal has this really old history as well, or really known uh, bike brands, right? That were really built from scratch there. Then we started to to this uh, level of we 
we are really maybe one of the biggest assemblers. So we really assemble a lot of the bicycles in in Portugal. So we probably design, but then we import the frames and all the components from Asia and, and we are assembling. And now we are starting to see a bit of a shift. But up until now, even a, um, a lot in terms of product development and prototyping is really not in Portugal. So it's a little bit more um, outside. But now you're starting to see and you do have one of the biggest... Um, um, some of the biggest as well uh, factories mm. that are now starting to, to I've, build I've some of the... Some. Yes, yes. And, yes, and uh, that's, so, that's how I know it's you So, know, yeah, you probably been to Carbon, Carbon Team and Triangles and some of them. Yes. So they are starting as well and they're, they're building uh, so some of the frames. So we really want to shift, give the shift in terms of working with different materials because we know that the industry is starting to talk about it now, like looking for natural fibers, how can we replace or at least combine some of the components with some more of natural fibers. So that's a little bit our, our goal here to, to step up. We know that because we're doing small production, because it's still a, um, a different material you cannot really just scale up or I cannot just go and subcontract to someone else to build it up so of yep. course that makes that the product has a different level also the choice of our components and, and brands made the, the bike uh, as it is because we wanted something a little bit high-end with really high quality low maintenance so that you can have really a bicycle to be durable as much as possible yeah sure and what's your background? So why? why tell me about you. Okay, so I, I've studied economics, but I've been living abroad. I lived abroad for more than 11 years between Spain, Mexico, Holland and China. So and that's why six years in China got me closer and got me passionate about bamboo. Uh, and I found out bamboo. I started like really researching about it, traveling around uh, Asia as well to and to some of the events around bamboo to get to know more about it. And uh, my brother, that is my co-founder, is an industrial designer. He had previously working with Orbita, that it was one of the the big brands as well before in the, in the bike industry in Portugal. So we just challenged ourselves, and we saw that no one in Portugal was working with bamboo. In Europe, a very few persons were really working with bamboo in a structural way or building their own brand or really trying to, to build their own frames here. So we really saw that there was really a, a space to, to evolve. And our dream is really to be a bit of the hub of innovation of bamboo in Europe so that people can also come to us and try to understand how can we progress and collaborate with big brands in order to move in, into the right direction. and. So would you say you're, you're, you were more bamboo yeah. than bicycle? Yes, yes. But you've kind of educated yourself on the bicycle side because you've, you've, you've zeroed in yeah. on the bicycle as something that can do something with bamboo. As well. But, so you came bamboo first and bicycle second. Yes, I bamboo first and then bicycle second. And then with, with the background of, uh, of the, our industrial designer, of Tiago, that he was on the bike industry as well and 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 a passionate of of bikes we really saw that there was really a, um, a match there and how long have you been going so how new is this company so we we've been going uh, like 2 years ago i decided to move back from china to to portugal and uh, we launched this this models last year so yeah it's been a, a baby with more or less 2 years and how is it going it's going good. It's been the first time outside of Portugal really to, to present the, the brand and the project. I think definitely the feedback here, it's 
way more exponential than in Portugal. I think the, you know, in, in Portugal, the markets and the mindset is completely different for, you know, uh, urban cycling. We don't really have that culture as well still. So here it's been really, really interesting. And we've been approached for some big brands that are interested to collaborate. So we're really keen on seeing how As in big brands, as in corporates rather yes. than from bikes. Yes. Because right now you have, or roughly now, is Eurobike. Yes. is happening. Yeah, that's why we're also there. Oh, you're also there? I was yeah, going to yeah. say, you could have been there, but yeah, yeah. you're we're, we're, okay. We are there. Not, so with, not with the stand, but we are there. So our, oh, so you, you're wandering our, around. Our industrial designer is there. Yeah, exactly. So right. that's the goal. But we were invited so you could have been, here. you could have exhibited there. Yeah. But, the, but you've come here instead. So that's interesting. Yeah, but here was, well, it's it's in terms of like investment at this point, right? The stand there, it gets a bit of a, and here we got invited to. So we got the chance of like split the team and, and be here as well to understand a bit the market. And our goal was really to look for some partnerships on, on the corporate world as well and to look for potential um, distributors or wholesalers. So we're keen to then tomorrow as well, we have a few meetings so that we can explore that way. Well, Joanna, I wish you all the best with, with getting more corporates to Thank get on Bambi Bicycles. Tell us how we can get in touch. So put it on tape, your website, all your socials. How do we get in touch with you? Okay, so you can uh, follow us on, on Instagram on uh, Bamboo Bicycles. and um, So B-A-M-B-U. Yes, exactly. And you can also um, check our website that is uh, Bamboo how do you dash dash yeah bamboo dash bicycles.com and follow as well subscribe our newsletter we always like get some either promotions or new product developments or we will let you know the next events we're going to be in elma how do you pronounce that second name it's barbaro vichuta difficult I'm glad, yeah i'm glad you said <laughs> that and not me um elma what is this fettle Yes. Is so. a bike, because fettles are like a Northern English word yes. for, when I, I do an American podcast, uh, and, and whenever I say the word fettle, Americans go, <laughs> it, it's Northern English. It's, it's like, it it's, is, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. So I know what fettle means. It means to like, you know, repair yes. something. But you tell me what it means in, in your context. Yeah, so fettle is a fastest growing bike repair network in the UK. So at the moment, we have four workshops in London. Uh, and we recently opened the one in Bristol. We actually partnered up with QuickFit uh, not long time ago. So two of our workshops are in QuickFit locations. And we're actually about to open the sixth one. Uh, and it's going to be the third one with, in, in partnership with QuickFit, basically. So, yeah, so we do everything uh, everything to do with bike repair, basically. So we don't sell bikes because uh, we believe every single bike can be repaired. Uh, so you can bring your bike into our workshop and we're going to fix it. And we also do a lot of uh, fleet maintenance. We do manufacturer partnerships. Uh, an important part of our business is making sure uh, at the moment, it's only effective in London, uh, but making sure that people who commute to work, uh, they do it on the safe bike. So we, uh, a lot of uh, our businesses like B2B. So let's say we go to a big corporate and we maintain employees' bikes and we also do workshops. So we people teach people how to maintain their own bikes uh, and all the sort of jazz. <laughs> we have a lot of community rides events as well. So it's, it's yeah, it's a really wide business. So do your mechanics, are they all like SciTech accredited? What, what, what is the accreditation that you're using? 
Yeah, so all of our mecha- uh, like in the workshops, obviously we have mechanics and people who go and like teach people, they're also mechanics. Yeah. But that's SciTech. That's that's what accreditation you're using. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that's I assume SciTech. Um, typically, there's SciTech, but there are other accreditation schemes out there, such as Evans ran one on their own at some point. Yeah. Um, uh, and we'll take into account not just accreditation, but more importantly, experience. So certainly, you know, accreditation can only speak to a certain, you know, degree if, if you know, you don't see the experience of um, the commuter bike versus, you know, the high-end kind of electronic, you know, race bikes. There's, there's certainly kind of gaps in between there. Accreditation doesn't always... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you where SciTech came from. So SciTech was founded about 35 years ago by a bike shop owner. It was, it was basically the Association of Cycle Traders. Yes. Tell me, stop me if, if you know this history. And uh, they went into a, this particular bike shop, went into a court case. Yes. Where a bike had been fettled. Of course. And the judge said, yes, very well. Um, uh, it's Sh- Shuttleworth was the guy, Albert Shuttleworth. Sorry, I'll uh, dive in here. Quick fact check. It was actually Albert Shucksmith. And he died in 2001, a few years after the setting up of SciTech. Okay, back to myself giving a lecture at uh, the MOVE conference. Very well. uh, What's your accreditation? Oh, we haven't got one. Well, this case is now closed. If you haven't got an accreditation, you're an official trade body doesn't matter how well experienced you are. Yes. Because you know, the guy, he said, I've been doing bike mechanics for 30 years. And the judge said, I don't care. I want to see your accreditation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he then went back to the Association of Cycle Traders and said, look, yes. if we do not have accreditation. So they founded their own accreditation way ahead of the American industry, which, which mm-hmm. has got all sorts of different uh, weird ones. Mm-hmm. So accreditation is incredibly important to, to, to have. So that's, that where, that's where the, the, the question was coming from. Like, Yes. How do you actually, a customer comes in, gives you a very expensive bike. Yeah. How do they know that, A, it's been handled by somebody who knows what they're doing, and B, they're insured. You Absolutely. Know, they, right. they, they know that this bike has been fettled correctly. Of course, yeah. Sorry, so you're Andy. So yes, Because you're not on microphone <laughs> now. Um, no, 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 it's okay. So Andy, I'm going to try and lean into That's you okay. so That's you get okay. my microphone as well. Um, so are you uh, partners in the business? What's, what, what is the, what's the, how is the business formulated? Well, Ilma is the partnerships manager um, and I'm the uh, uh, stock, so I'm buying and purchasing manager. Um, in terms, uh, what was your question, sorry? The, in terms of how is business? How big is the company? How is it formulated? Is it a limited company? Is it all that kind of Okay, jazz? so we are a limited company. Uh, we op- operate five workshops at the moment three sorry four of which are in london uh we've recently opened a new workshop in bristol that's our first workshop outside of london uh and we are looking to expand very quickly with uh with the assistance of with partnership with quickfit uh through their center network hmm. through there through there that uh, could be quite rapid yes yeah that yes. could be like boom 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 all of a sudden you've got how many how many stores do they have so they've got around 650 well 600 plus i'll say um, and we started uh, the partnership operationally in April, I believe. And mm-hmm. uh, we've already opened our first workshop in Bristol with their assistance. 
uh, and our East Dulwich workshop is in their centre. We opened that last month. So they know, or maybe you're telling them, this is a high cycling area. Yes. You should open it here, whereas you could, like, someone on the outskirts of a city or something like where there's no yeah. high cycling. Don't bother opening one there. Is that, is that how you're handling it? Uh, we would like, we would prefer to say it's more about priorities. So we would aim for the uh, high traffic, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, conurbations uh, uh, first, and then uh, we'll then work towards, uh, I guess, a lot outside of that, you know, as, as, uh, as a trickle down of the tree. And talk about trickling down, mechanics traditionally never used to get paid a, a, a huge amount bike mechanics i mean side tech actually helped that because yes. you could like you know you could if you're level whatever yes, you yes, get yes. more money do you think federal could raise the game could raise it, it makes it a more of a career opportunity for somebody yes. because there's a career path yes going through is that is that something that you've considered and they're like you, you, yeah we you want to well, pay more, more money that certainly was a i believe a um uh, uh, one of our vision, part of our vision in the beginning. As we started, we started four years ago, um, I guess just as the industry was starting to tail off before the pandemic and then everything else happened amongst that. Uh, part of our commitment to that was that we had started a, we were, uh, we were participating in the London living wage. So our mechanics certainly were paid, well are paid, uh, above market rate um, at the time. And we are now starting to see that market rate is starting to catch up to us, which is great news for everyone, uh, particularly the industry. And yeah, we certainly see that uh, as we already are starting to see that our mechanics, uh, yeah, as they kind of go on to other opportunities is that they are, um, they are viewed as being of, shall we say, higher quality because of their association with us. Okay. Brilliant. Andy, what's your second name? Lou, Andy Lou. I'll give you a, I'll give you a call. Because we've got your name on tape, and I won't say it again, but we didn't get your name Andy on tape. Okay, Andy thank Lou. you. Yes. Great stuff. Brilliant, thank you. Oh, Brilliant. I, I, I should ask. I, in fact, I've got your business card here, so I can actually put this on tape. Of, 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 uh, so it's fettle.cc. Fettle.cc. Yeah. That's how thank people you. get in touch with you. Anybody who wants a job or wants to <laughs> yeah. yes. expand, expand your empire. Or See, it doesn't have to be quick fit. It could be... Well, at the moment, it's, it's, um, it's an exclusive, well, it's an exclusive partnership. Our network is our own. Um, we are, we own and operate our work, our network. So it's not a kind of like a franchisee model. We um, are only doing it with QuickFit as a as a partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a sole partner. Yeah, and you can also follow us on social media. It's at Fettelbike everywhere, and we upload all the news about new workshops, about community rides, community events, so people can join yeah, us, even if they're the beginners or even if they're like advanced in their cycling journey. Everyone's welcome. Next up, here is Alex Murray of the folding e-bike brand Flitbike. Right, Alex, this is uh, we're, we're we're basically taking our lives into our, our hands here. We're in the middle of the test track. Uh, basically, people are going around on scooters at Move, yes. at Excel, but you in the middle are also allowing people to have a go. And this is this is version two, iteration two of the Flip bike, yes? Yes. Yeah. So what's different to this compared to previous? So at Flip, we specialize in making lightweight folding electric bikes, mainly for urban commuters. So think of anyone who needs to take a, a train into a major city as part of their commute. Uh, a few years ago, we developed our first bike. It was called the Flip 16. Uh, we manufactured hundreds of those, sold them to people all across the UK and Europe. Um, but then, as in common with a lot of 
companies in the bike industry, the supply crunch happened. Uh, the lead time on welding factories went from two months up to about 18 months in some cases. Um, and once you include getting all the components and shipping bikes over from Taiwan and so on, lead times could go up to nearly two years. So uh, we decided to go back to the drawing board got a grant from Innovate UK, mm -hmm. um, and we used that to develop a whole new manufacturing method. So the bike you can see here has no welding on it whatsoever. It's a non-weld bike. It uses the same adhesives that are used in the aerospace and um, automotive industries. So uh, the bike is mechanically fixed together, and then it, it, we use industrial strength adhesives to put it together. Now, that's not actually that new. Those techniques have been used since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, however, where it doesn't necessarily make sense for a full-size bike, for a folding bike, it makes a lot of sense. Because if you're working in aluminium, when you weld the, the frame and then you do something called heat treatment to, to, to re-strengthen the frame afterwards, you introduce distortions every time you do that. Um, and by, by not using welding, we don't have any of those distortions. So it means we can be very accurate with how the parts fold together. That's allowed us to get more compact. So this bike is about 20% more compact than our original version. Uh, and it's also lighter. It's about a kilo and a half lighter. So the Brompton and many other bikes have like a removable battery pack mm -hmm. on the front or wherever. So where's, where's the battery on this? Where's everything hidden? And how do you recharge it? Sure thing. Yeah, yeah. So the Brompton make fantastic bikes. When they came to making an electric folding bike, they didn't want to change the design too much. So they uh, essentially sort of retrofitted a lot of the components onto the bike. Motor goes in the front wheel, the battery clips onto the front, as you say. We started from a blank piece of paper, which meant we could put things where we wanted. Uh, so the battery for us lives in the top tube here, um, and uh, it's got the charging port there on the side, so it can all be charged. The battery is removable as well. So if I just take the seat posts out, Appreciate your listeners won't be able to see this, but the battery slides out there. Right. And, uh, and that's a custom-made battery that lives in the top tube with an integrated rear light. I was going to say, there's, a, there's an LED at the back there yeah. as well. And there's, a, there's something at the front as well. Yes, so we have a integrated a light front, front light on the front there. Yeah, and you mean it's basically a monoblade as well. So there's yep. like the Mike Burroughs influence here. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's R.I.P. Mike. Indeed. Um, it's painted by us. So we've just had our patent fully granted. Uh, across uh, the European Union, which is our, our main main market, the UK and European Union, uh, I should say. Uh, so that patent's now been granted. It's a unique fold that... Okay, so folding bikes have been around for a very long time, 100 years at least. Mm. Um, so there's very little new under the sun. However, not many people have been designing folding bikes with lithium-ion batteries integrated into them. That's quite new. So the way this bike folds, you would only do it if you get a battery that was small and light enough from the lithium-ion technology to fit inside the bike. So it uses a unique fold that uses an offset headset and an angled fork hinge to bring the front wheel to the side. So you mentioned Brompton earlier, so I'll just use them as a reference point. Brompton achieves something similar, but they use a hinge on the top tube. Um, it's a great design, but if you want to put a battery in the top tube, it's not going to work. So this, is a, this, is, this fold is patented. And it's been through the examination process and everything. So and it's Alex, all how much is this going to set me back if I'm going into a shop or if I'm buying a direct? I mean, you can tell me then two, two parts of that question then. Where do you buy it and how much does it cost? Sure, sure. So at the minute, we're direct consumer only, so you can buy them from us. Uh, we have uh, partnerships lined up with uh, shops in the UK, but we're going to be launching that in a, in a later phase. Uh, so at the minute, it's just from us. The full retail price of the bike is two and a half thousand pounds. 
Which is all right. Which is okay for a folding, uh, okay. folding e-bike, yeah. um, particularly in the premium category. But uh, because we're doing pre-orders at the minute, so people are ordering them in advance, it's actually 2,000 pounds. When you add on top of that, that most people are buying through cycle to work, the price can drop another 40% or so. So we think we're pretty well priced. And Alex, tell me where we can learn more about Flit. Yep. Give so, us your website and your socials. Sure thing. So we're, we're to be found online at www.flit.bike. Um, and then to find this bike in particular, it's flit.bike forward slash M2. And on social, so it's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we're at Flitbike. So Xavier, um, here, it's just tech, tech, tech at the yeah. MOVE conference. It's uh, e-scooters, it's uh, autonomous vehicles, yeah. it's lorries that emit only water, uh, not spewing out uh, yeah. uh, awful stuff out of the back there. So the thing that's missing is Shanks's pony, is pavements, because you've been given a talk yeah. here and you were talking about how we move yeah. and how you showed some slides of dystopias. In other words, uh, those kind of motor-centric cities of the future where almost walking isn't and wheeling and, and, and wheelchairs yeah. are just pretty much almost not there or you know, widely separate. So you are the opposite to, to everything that's here. Are you here as some sort of agent provocateur? Well, to a certain extent, I mean, that's just, this conference is called MOVE, so it's about movement. And my argument was movement is one of the fundamental things that makes us human, actually. And therefore, how we move is a fundamental question about how we want to live together. And, and I, I don't think that, that we're the kind of opposite of all of this. I mean, there's some practical stuff, isn't there? There's not much money to be made from walking and pavements. Um, and this is a conference with exhibitors and there's, you know, there's a commercial side to it which needs to be recognised. And, and I think that's just commercial reality. Yeah? Not much, there's not much money in active travel. Um, so, and, and so I think that, that in part shapes what you're seeing here. And the other thing to say is that transport technology, transport innovation, a lot of what you see here, there is nothing wrong with it per se. There is nothing wrong per se with the car. It's often the unintended consequences. And so I think that highlighting the unintended consequences, talking about those and reminding people that ultimately, just as transports are derived demand, transport technology is, is serving a purpose, which is to connect us, to move us. And actually, we need to go back to the question of, of not only how do we want to get from A to B as quickly as possible, but how do we want to live? How do we want to be together? How do we want to move together? And given that movement is an opportunity for human connection, how can we maximize that while still enabling people to have convenient, comfortable journeys that in a way that helps bring us together, helps us be the society we want to be rather than push us apart? So you're talking about connectors, connections yeah. you have when you, when you walk and potentially when you, when you cycle. I mean, you can yeah. just stop on a, on a dime and talk to somebody, which you, you tend not to be able to do in a car. And you showed uh, one slide, which is the famous uh, study of Sheffield, where a great-grandfather, you know, as an eight-year-old, had eight-mile radius 
coming right down to the modern generation of that family, you know, 300 yards away from uh, the house. And you mentioned in your talk, well, right now, that's probably even less than that. And the other study you, you could have mentioned, but you will be familiar with, is the Apple Yard study, which is the, 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 the amount of connections you've yes. got across a across street. Ways. Yeah. Across, you know, with, if you've got cars coming here, yeah. then whereas people, you can, yeah. people go at different angles when there's no cars, yeah. basically. And that's also uh, something to do oh. with, with human connection. Absolutely. So that's something that we're losing. And you're, what you said in your talk is what we travel in teleporters. We're traveling to get places as fast as possible, whereas that's for our mental health and for many other reasons, that's probably not a, the, the most optimum thing to do. No, indeed. And, and so it's always the danger, isn't it? When you optimize for one thing, you optimize for that one thing, and therefore you will have unintended consequences. And so to go back to that notion of, of human connections, the point I was making there was a, so when I used to walk my daughters to school, because the school was close enough to the house to do that, then during that walk, I would always see somebody I knew, and I knew them probably through, I might have met them on the walk to school, actually and got chatting and, and, and that's been making a human bond and it's not trivial there's lots of evidence you know, trust is built over time not in single big acts so, so community trust is built through those social bonds and I talked about you know, when you drive and I do drive and I now drive my children to the station on a um, fairly regular basis and it's not safe enough to cycle sadly um, when, I, when you do that literally Anyone you come across, unless they're going the other way, see, anyone else you come across on the road is in your way. Somebody crossing is slowing you down. Yeah? The car in front of you, who wasn't there, you, you could go faster if they're not going speedily. Are you, are, you trying, sorry, are you trying to stop yourself from thinking that? Or you are thinking that when you're driving, you know this is the we, impulse. We, we, it is the impulse, isn't it? Because, because when you get in a car, oh, sorry, no, yeah, the fact is, is that people are in your way. So you know, I was at an event at the RAC Foundation about the future of the car. And Richard Hammond was one of the talkers who was being a little provocative, understandably. And, but he was talking about, you know, the goal is to get somewhere, and ideally get somewhere quicker than someone else, was his words. Now, that's an exaggeration of it, but there is something, isn't it? It's that notion, you know, it's that famous thing of people complaining about the traffic, not recognising they're part of the traffic. We, we all do it, yeah? Um, it, it, and it's, it's the nature of being enclosed in your own personal mobility device, your own teleport. And I think that, and, and beyond that, though, you know, Going back to, to what you were saying about that's the Apple Yard study. So, so increasingly, car travel is about door-to-door. So one of the things I talked about was the scourge of pavement parking, the huge impact that has on disabled people in particular. And it seems, again, like a minor thing. But it's huge, actually. And, and one of the reasons I think this come about, there's more than one reason, one is certainly the increase in private car ownership, I saw you on Twitter tweeting about recently, um, so that there are simply more cars and less space. But one of the things that I regularly see, and I imagine you do too, is actually where there are perfectly sensible places to park, people are not parking there because it's not directly outside where they want to go. And what seems to have happened is, there's a sort of a view that it is sort of my right to park outside my destination. So this notion of the car as sort of pseudo-teleporter it's becoming more and more the case. Now, if you think about an autonomous vehicle, especially one you know, summon up on your phone, you are getting close to teleportation. You are getting close to this ideal of, you know, I tap on my phone, 
my pod arrives, I get in it, I get to my destination, I have no contact with anyone on the outside world, bang, I'm there. Amazingly convenient. And living in suburban Surrey with children who do after-school activities with very limited safe cycling infrastructure and an adequate bus service, you know, I know how much time gets spent throwing children around. Oh my goodness, the thought of being able to put them in an autonomous pod? You know, let's face it, that is a, that is a, that would, that would improve quality of life. But at what cost? At what, at what cost to their own sense of independence? At what cost to the society we're building? And if you think about some of the images I showed and, and poked fun at, which were these kind of tech visions of, of a tech-enabled transport future, you just want to step back from and say, well, actually, focus on, it looks amazingly convenient, but where does it take us? Does it take us somewhere that we actually want to live, that we actually want to build communities in, that we want our, you know, where, ch where our children will be able to play, where our children will learn their independence? And, and most things are really important, especially in an increasingly polarized world, and especially with the public health and crisis that we have, and we're storing up for the future, where actually movement is good for us. Encountering people who are different than us is good for us. Building community bonds, and actually a lot of the way we do that, it's not at a destination. It's getting there, it's on the way there, it's leaving our door, it's walking to the bus stop, it's, it's those, so on the way here today, actually, at the railway station, I bumped into somebody who I hadn't spoken to for years and we caught up and, and it helps, it made me happy, actually, and it helps increase our social capital. And, and these are not trivial things. You mentioned, I agree, they're not trivial things. You mentioned um, the polarised world. Yeah. And in your talk, you mentioned that there are some LTNs that were brought in at breakneck speed. Potentially, that's where some of the friction has come from. But then you predicted that the, going forward, some of the conspiracy theories around LTNs and around 15-minute cities is not going to go away, could potentially even increase. Is that, is that a fair reflection of, of, of where you were going with that? I think it's, it's not a comforting thought, is it? But I think, I, I think when, you, when you look at the, the challenges around climate change, that are all too real, and what those are, are leading to. Um, and if you look, you know, the, the US is often ahead of the UK on many things, you know, it's a predictor of what's to come. And there's a, I, I lived in the US for several years in the early 2000s, and I think if I was to go back, it would feel very different. Certainly talking to people who live in the States, you know, clearly in some and, and, and you look across mainland Europe and on the rise of rise of far right parties as well as the far left. So I, I think I think it's difficult to say that I'd much I'd like to say, but you know, we're not gonna polarization is gonna go away, the conspiracy theories are gonna go away. There's little evidence of that. Um, and and things that get taken into the orbit of different conspiracy theories, you know, going back to what I talked about movement, movement's a fundamental human fundamentally being human and it's where conflict occurs because it's where we come together and and movement and transport is often you know, it's one of those social dilemmas isn't it it's you know it's it's by maximizing my own personal gain my own personal ability my own personal convenience can act against the greater good as the good of the whole which ultimately will come back and bite me traffic and and so i think it's no surprise that transport finds itself in the crosshairs there um, especially where, where people live. 
Um, and it also is kind of getting deliberately pulled in in some areas. So, so I think it's not going to go away, and, and it's not just climate change because because a lot of what some of what we're talking about, you know, you replace cars with electric cars, or can't you? Know, if you were to able to snap your fingers and replace all cars with electric cars tomorrow, which of course is impossible, um, you would still have challenges around LTNs. You would still have issues around traffic. Traffic does not cut people off. All the stuff we haven't even talked about emissions yet. So I, I don't think that the electrification we see around us here today and is going on and is really needed is a good thing. That's not going to solve some of the fundamental dilemmas in transport, which actually is what makes it so fascinating, so interesting and so worth influencing and looking to change for the better. Thanks to Sustrand CEO Xavier Bright there. Next up is Henri Mossignac, co-founder of DOT. But first, let's go across to my colleague David for a short ad break. Hello, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and, of course, the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn build bikes that make it easier for you to replace car trips with bike trips. Part of that is being committed to designing useful bikes that are also fun to ride. But an even greater priority for Turn is to make sure that your ride is safe and worry-free. And that's why Turn works with industry-leading third-party testing labs like EFBE and builds its bikes around Bosch e-bike systems, which are UL certified for both electric and fire safety. So before you even zip off on your turn, fully loaded and perhaps with a loved one behind, you can be sure that the bike has been tested to handle the extra stresses on the frame and the rigors of the road. For more information, visit www.turnbicycles.com to learn more. And now, back to the spokesman. Thanks, David. And we are back with audio from the Move Mobility Conference. I was one of the interviewers on the show's main stage and I snuck on my microphones so I could record my fireside chat with Henri Mossignac of the City Share Scooter and E-Bike Company, DOT. Welcome on stage, our next session, Carlton Reeve and Henry Moissonac. Thank you. Good morning. We are mic'd up and we are ready to go. Uh, so uh, I am here this morning with uh, Henri Moissagnac. You live in London, don't yes, you? Yes, I do, Henri. So um, we're going to be talking in a minute about 15-minute cities. And if you're aware of all the conspiracy theories around 15-minute cities, we're going to not try and go down into that particular rabbit hole. We are going to try and keep it all positive. Uh, neither of us are in the, the pay of the World Economic Forum. Uh, let's just put that out there at the moment. Um, but first of all, before um, we get into the, 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 the absolute governs of what we're going to be doing uh, here this morning, Henri, let's find a little bit about you. Because you're with DOT, we'll get into the biography of DOT in a moment, but let's get a biography of you. So tell us about your background, because you started in e-commerce and even in social networking, both of these things before they became big. So give us your, your biography, and then we'll get into Dot. Ah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So yeah, actually, I started in e-commerce, and it makes me think about mobile, because when I started in e-commerce, it was like 
three, four years before it started become, becoming popular. And I remember vividly people were telling me, it's just ne never going to work. You know, people are never going to put their credit card on the internet. And uh, some of the things we did and some of the companies I worked for became massive, massive successes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of users. It was the same uh, when I started in social networking. So I was an early employee at Facebook. We are 300 employees. And when I joined Facebook, people were telling me, it's never going to work. You know, people are ne you're only going to see uh, photos of cats and dogs on the internet. <laughs> and look uh, how many users now. And I, to, to me, mobility was a bit the same. I started getting interested in uh, shared mobility. And people were telling me, yeah, it's never going to work. You know? I think uh, what we see here with the move, you know, if you look how much progress from the first one in 2019 to today, look how vibrant this industry is, is, is becoming. So I think it's going to be the same. Like e-commerce, like social networking, some of the other things you've seen massive changes. I think shared mobility or micro-mobility, these type of things that you see behind is going to become very popular. And the one who's going to disappear is the personal car within cities. Yes. Uh, now let's go into Dot. So how did you get into Dot and describe, because uh, Dot has not just uh, shared scooters, it also has e-bikes. So describe the trajectory of, I mean, Dot started in France, yes, in Paris. Yeah. Right. So maybe just a few words about Dot and how we started. So Dot, we operate about 60,000 vehicles. About one third of this is e-bikes and the other, the rest of it is uh, e-scooters. We are in 35 cities in Europe. And most of the main uh, cities in West Europe, so London, Paris, Brussels, Milan, Rome, uh, Warsaw, Madrid. Uh, we're also in Tel Aviv and the surroundings. And then we operate uh, plenty of smaller cities in, uh, in uh, Belgium, France, Italy, uh, a bit of UK, a bit of Spain. Um, when it started, I, I was actually on a uh, refreshing trip in China. Uh, I wanted to take a, a personal break and uh, go through the bucket list. So I went to China because I wanted to see how vibrant and how China was, not, not the touristy aspect of it, but you know, spending time with entrepreneurs and so on. And I saw this wave of shared bikes, uh, Mobike or four, you may have heard of these companies. And then it, it, we also heard about the stories about Bird coming up with a new form factor. And so uh, Maxime, my co-founder and I, we, we took a piece of paper and we said, okay, what are all the things we like of, the, of these things we're going to copy? What are all the things we don't like and we are going to do none of that? So for example, the gig economy of Bird, we said none of that for us. And then uh, uh, the last column was, what are all the things neither a Chinese or an American will understand? And that's typically the relationship with the cities and the stakeholders. And, and so we thought, okay, well, if we do very well what they're good at, if we avoid all the things we don't like, and if we do things that neither the Chinese or the Americans can understand, we really have a chance to, to win. So that, that started, uh, we were probably the last company to start, I mean, uh, among the big players. Uh, everybody thought we would have zero chance against a lime and a bird, and look where we are today. And we are very healthy, we are growing very fast. Um, uh, we feel very uh, safe about the future of this industry. So yeah, it was, um, that's how it started. So we are going to get on to 15 minutes, but let's dig a little bit more down into, into Dot. So you, the bikes came on after the, the scooters. So I'd be interested, and I'd be interested for you to tell uh, the audience, about the share between bikes now and scooters. And does that change compared to, to, the, to the way the city is and, and, and what's there 
on the ground when I sit in, for instance, bike lanes. Yeah. So first, it's step back and understand what's the vision and strategy, and then how they compare to each other today. So the vision is we want to go after every trip that is not walking or public transit. Uh, because, but, but when we are young and we only have a piece of paper and a few dollars, uh, you got to be a bit naive and optimistic and you got to start simple and be very focused. So we thought that uh, scooters would be the form factor to start with. Uh, we know, uh, and uh, all the data proves it today, scooters are a bit edgy, gives you more freedom, you feel younger, it's you know, typically a bit more male than female, a bit younger than... Um, the, the typical average citizen of a city. And so we thought, okay, let's do scooters. When we got it right in many cities, we start bikes. Um, and also we wanted to wait a bit to see what type of uh, shared bikes we could come up with because we thought the early pieces of hardware weren't going to be sustainable enough. Uh, so now in most capital cities, London, we operate in London, for example, we have both in Paris, Brussels, and so on. Uh, the, the, the bikes, they are typically older and more female. Uh, they, are, they go a bit faster, so typically commuters, they tend to like it a bit more. Uh, when it's cold, people prefer to do bikes, but when it rains, people prefer to do scooters. And typically, we have three types of users. We have people that are heavily on scooters and they love it, and it's just a lifestyle for them, and they don't want to touch a bike. Uh, we have people that are more pragmatic, like me, they will switch depending on availability, the weather, where they're going, um, if they know traffic or not. And then we have people that just don't want to touch a scooter and they will never get on one and they're only comfortable on bikes. So that's why you need to cater to both. And, and the bikes, they're e-bikes, so they're limited in their speed. But on, on downhill sections, for instance, you're not limited. You can go as fast as you like on a bike. The scooter, of course, yeah. is limited. So why, why do cities, why does the industry, the, the sector, limit one mode doesn't end the other mode because, of course, motorists are not limited. Yeah. So, for, for, for maybe I'll share the facts first and then I'll answer your question. So, typically in cities, the, the bikes have, um, so all our bikes are capped in speed. Same for scooters. And in some cities, most cities, the bikes have a slightly higher uh, speed capped again uh, than your scooters. But there are sometimes bigger differences. For example, in London, with a bike on that, you can go through a park, but you can't do it on a scooter. Uh, the parking rules also can change. So in, uh, take for example in Paris, the, where the gap is the most important, so there's like 10,000 parking spots for bikes and only 2,500 parking spots for, for scooters. So it doesn't really give exactly the same experience. I think this, the, the reason for that is because scooters is new and bikes is not, uh, a lot of uh, stakeholders have decided to limit the speed. I think actually the speed of a scooter is, uh, is quite good though. I mean, it, it really goes well. It's not too fast. Uh, it's not too slow. On, London is the only city where it's slightly lower than the other cities. Um, and then the bikes, uh, they, they, are, they can go faster, but they don't go at the speed of a personal bike. Uh, most of the personal bikes, to, uh, sorry, shared bikes. The, the speed of our bikes is designed so that if you ride in a bike lane with center of the bikes, for example, you're going to be in the flow. You're not really, you can pass, but you're not going to disrupt Everybody. So not too, not too slow and not too fast. 15-minute cities, which is the, the, the conspiratorial uh, thing of the moment. Um, but it's a very, very nice concept, you would think, to, to, to live close to education, to shops, to, to nice restaurants. Why on earth would that be uh, subject to a conspiracy theory? It's quite strange. However, Carlos Moreno who was a guy who came up with the concept 
um, in Paris, Pop Paris. Um, and he describes it as something that the proximity to all of these amenities is mainly by foot. So a bicycle, a share bike, a bike, standard bicycle or a scooter actually extends that to not being a 15 minute stick because you can get quite a long way um, on a scooter or on a bike compared to the, the walking 15 minute city. So do we still talk about a 15 minute city when we've got a bicycle or a scooter involved? So. The, the concept of 15-minute cities is uh, it's really a vision I, I, I follow and I believe a lot when uh, this type of uh, messengers came from not just Paris, actually, a lot of cities are thinking like this. London is the perfect example of you know, these vibrant neighborhoods here and there. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, your job, your university, maybe your next uh, job interview, or your friends, they're not going to be 15 minutes walking away. What would be great is they could be 15 minutes with public transit or uh, your personal bike or a shared bike. And uh, you can do quite a lot of distance in 15 minutes on the dot, whether it's a scooter or a bike. So it, it just widens the, the, the possible network. So I don't know, let's take an example. If you're in Piccadilly Circus, you know, center of London, it takes uh, to go to the other side of Hyde Park, it's about 18 minutes with a, with a shared bike. It would take a lot longer uh, in public transit. Um, and um, yeah, so and if you have your personal bike, if, if it hasn't been stolen, uh, yeah, you can go even faster. So I do believe that uh, micro-mobility, shared scooters, shared bikes, private uh, bikes, they, they help you live within 15 minutes, but it just increases dramatically the reach, the distance you can get there. Uh, the, the average distance in Paris, for example, I'm just French, so. I'll use that example. Uh, the average distance in Paris is about three kilometers for us. And it's completely, when you talk to people, the press, uh, interns, people that are not in the industry, it doesn't matter. Uh, they, it's very hard for them to relate exactly what three kilometers, because that's not how they think. So you tell them, well, it's about 25, half an hour uh, in metro or in tube. By the time you get there, maybe, and if there's a connection, it's 45 minutes. And so that's how people think. And if you're telling them a 45-minute trip with one connection, now you can do in 20 minutes on a shared service. I mean, I'm going to see my friends. I may take a job that is further. I may have a, this other business meeting and build this relationship face-to-face -face that I wasn't able to do so. So I, re I really believe we are bringing good here. When, when I, I, I got here from King's Cross on a folding bike, and most of the way it's on CS3, which is the Cycle Super Highway 3, which is great. But then there's one little bit, uh, the last, basically the last mile, in fact, uh, is uh, not on bike paths and you're on a, on, a, on a road. But there was no cars on that road. And all of a sudden, what would have been quite an awful journey if there are thousands of cars on that particular busy, what would normally be, a, you'd think, a busy stretch of road, suddenly became, this is great, because there, there are no cars and no trucks. And so I can now go on what, in effect, was a, like a, a, a dual carriageway motorway quite happily. So is that the future for cities? Because cities like London, you know, private motor cars are disappearing. Paris, you know, and Hidalgo with all her uh, concept are also trying to get rid of parking spaces, trying to get rid of cars. So is the future for cities going to be, it's not going to be bike lanes, it's going to be there are no cars around, 
and it'll be the, 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 the scooters, the bikes, the private bikes, the private scooters. That's going to take over, and you're not going to have to build bike paths. You've got the existing infrastructure, all these beautiful roads. It's probably the hardest question for all the stakeholders and cities because they have all these conflicting messages and so on. But the, the reality is that a city needs infrastructure. It needs logistics, it needs delivery trucks. Your restaurant will be able to serve you pizza in the evening uh, if there's not a delivery truck in the morning. So you're still going to have motor vehicles and some of them quite big too, uh, to, for example, the delivery uh, people. And how do you combine all these modes? The, the one thing I think most cities are clear on is the private ownership of cars to do small trips within cities. That, that doesn't make sense. And we've been living for 30 years, and that's the transition we're doing. It reminds me, you are talking about e-commerce, it's the same transition of, I, I, I go to some place to, to do some shopping because I, don't, I can't just have it delivered. Or um, if you take, for example, email, I had to send faxes in the past, now I can do it over email. That transition takes time. Uh, but I think this, this transition, how they are going to rethink the, the center of cities, it's, it's moving really fast. Uh, I've been in London now for 10 years. If you look at embankment, uh, you know, it used to be a car highway, and now look how, how much better. So, but what's for sure is that to really get uh, mobility to change, you need to have safe paths for, for, for people to be comfortable on their private uh, bike or shared services. That, that's really important. And so that's why most of the time the primary battle is to get uh, safe space, uh, specifically at the intersections, uh, how, you know, for pedestrians and for shared services. I, I agree with the safe space, but kind of circling back on that question, just if you get rid of the cars, you have got that safe space. So that's, and that's an easy win for a legislator. Get rid of the cars. Why can't cities just get rid of the cars? I, I, it's really interesting to see the conflict between uh, the stakeholders within one city. So I do have a lot of respect. Take, take London, for example. The, the people in London that build the bike lanes, they are really crusaders. You know, they are really trying good for the city, but every time there's a project for a bike lane, there's plenty of propositions. It takes forever to convince the local residents that uh, removing parking spots, uh, you, because if you, if you remove the par a parking lane, you know, like there's like 50 cars that are sitting there forever, moving maybe once a day at best, at best. Just remove that, do a bike lane. Think about all the people that could benefit from the space. So it sounds obvious, but it seems to be extremely difficult to, 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 to do. Uh, and I think it's really important to have city stakeholders that are thinking about the long term and not the short term. And the long term is having a personal car parked in the streets, not moving, when you can remove that and do a bike lane or a delivery spot, uh, the, sorry, the, a parking spot for deliveries. So obvious, so let's just do it. You talked before about shopping. In, with a scooter or with a bike, you can't carry a sofa, you can't carry lots of heavy shopping, for instance, if you do a weekly shop. So the private car still has that, that perfection. You can carry lots of stuff. So how do you argue that we should get rid of cars because cars are actually quite useful, maybe only sometimes, but they're still useful. So can you argue? So I'm, I'm basically I'm being a devil's advocate here. So can we argue for getting rid of cars when they're actually incredibly useful? People will adapt their usages. There will always be a need for cars, for example, um, 
if you have kids or if you have luggage, if you're going very far away, I'm not saying the opposite here. But I'm thinking a lot of the things can be adapted. And the, the, the average consumer does change their habits. You were talking about shopping on a bike and a scooter. It works very well. And I mean, the base training course is EasyJet. You know, think of all the people that used to have luggage, big luggage and so on, and now they just have a backpack. Thank you, EasyJet, for training us to have a smaller backpack, you know, because you don't want to pay for luggage. It's the same if you... I spend a lot of time in the streets with users and so on. A lot of them start to carry their backpack. Uh, a lot of them, they, you know, they, you go to Gare du Nord or Saint-Pancras, you'll see them. They, they come out of the, the train and hop, they go off on the shared service, but they can't, you know, they don't carry a trolley anymore. They, they have a backpack. So yes, I mean, life is full of possibilities and people want to enjoy it as much as possible. You give them mobility, they'll do more things. And yes, if they need to carry a, slight, a slightly bigger backpack because they want to do shop, they'll adapt. I'm not, I'm not worried. We are about creating opportunities for people. Henri, thank you very much. If we could give uh, Henri Morsiak a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to all my guests today. And thanks to you for listening to episode 334 of the Spokesman podcast, brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode will feature two Swiss academics talking about a new report on the growth of cargo bike use. That'll be out next week. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.